Hello everyone. I'm recording this a little after the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which is Remembrance Day. And I just want to take this opportunity to give thanks for all of those who've given their lives in the service of others through the armed forces, protecting the public. As of yesterday, 8 a.m., uh, Wednesday, the 10th of November, we've had an additional 320 community cases and five cases of people positive as they were uh, leaving quarantine. They obviously now remain in isolation. That's a large number of new community cases, but I wanted to try and shift where we're focusing um, our concerns because, as some will have uh, been discussing, this really is um, more in terms of how our healthcare services are being used. The large majority of people who are positive are having either no symptoms at all or having mild symptoms and managing well at home. And I thank you for that. Many people with COVID will have very mild symptoms, maybe a fever, maybe a cough, and will be able to take simple paracetamol. And after a few days, after, like, just like with many viral illnesses, will feel quite well again. What we, um, we were able to undertake what we call a tabletop exercise on this Monday where we had all of the three hospitals, senior members of the staff from those three hospitals, uh, in a Zoom call together, along with Hazard Management Cayman Islands, members from the Deputy Governor's Office, and also members from the Cabinet Office, to undertake an exercise where we planned and discussed how we would manage 40 patients coming with COVID, then 100 patients, then 200 patients, in sort of a stress test scenario to see exactly what we would do, what steps would be taken, in, in a lot of detail. All of the hospitals already had plans, but we really wanted to see how these plans would work together as a whole, as part of our planning for the reopening process. What we discovered was that um, it, the number of beds that would be uh, given over to COVID and still allow routine operations to go ahead would be 55. That means that the elective surgeries would continue, the clinics would continue, and across all of the three hospitals, 55 COVID patients could be looked after. So when you think about the 15 admissions that we currently have at the Georgetown Hospital, because there are none in the doctor's hospital and none in Health City, you can see that we're only actually consuming 27% of the available capacity that the hospitals have put aside to look after COVID-19 patients. That, that leaves us in a good position. Um, Clearly, we are um, reopening, and also clearly, we um, are managing the numbers that we have. And we've been in this scenario with positive community cases for some nine weeks now. And you'll be aware that in many countries around the world, these so-called waves of infection, as they travel through the community and a lot of people get infected, often take around two to three months to begin to see them burning out. Ours may be burning out a little bit slower because we put in measures particularly to dampen down the infection. So masks, distancing, hand hygiene, our very high vaccination rates, and also the lateral flow um, tests being used and the policy being rolled out. All of thing, these things will dampen down the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and that's exactly what we want to do, to make sure that the hospitals do not have many, too many patients at once. 
Just to give you a little bit more details on those admissions, um, it's obviously of concern that three of those people are in the critical care unit. One is requiring a ventilator, and two are requiring what we call non-invasive ventilation. That means they're needing some extra respiratory support, more than oxygen. It's, it's like having a little bit of, um, um, it's like having what we call pressure support, a mask over your face, and then the, uh, a machine gives you a push when you begin to breathe in, and it helps you to breathe a little bit better, but it doesn't involve the endotracheal tube that goes down the windpipe. So there are three people that are needing that extra level of ventilation support, and the, there are 12 others um, who are on the general wards. Of the total 15 people, 12 of those are unvaccinated. From Tuesday to Wednesday, four people were admitted and four people were discharged. And then from Wednesday to Thursday, five people were admitted and four people were discharged. So even though you hear the number of people that are actually admitted to hospital, this number is moving and changing at all times. The actual people um, are changing from day to day, which is, again is good news because people are getting better, they're being well treated, and they're going home. One last message I wanted to give, um, as we're coming up to the holiday weekend, I'm really excited to be having an extra break. I, I know we all are, but I will be um, keeping um, my entertainments to the outside where I know it's safer. If you're going to mix with people, please do so outdoors. If you can hold off having big parties and big gatherings, especially in indoor spaces, please do so, because that's the wise and sensible thing to do when we have such widespread community transmission. And in particular, be careful of those who are unvaccinated, for example, children, and for those who are elderly or vulnerable. Those people need particular attention with regards scrupulous hygiene and mask wearing, if appropriate. Um, and also, for the unvaccinated, do consider getting vaccinated. You'll be aware that there's a slight pause in the vaccination program. Our next delivery is due tomorrow on the British Airways flight, and the vaccination program will be beginning again next week. Thank you and have a pleasant holiday weekend. Good night, everyone. I'm your host, Kevin Watley. You're watching the CMR COVID Spotlight. Welcome. And tonight's topic is going to be media coverage on COVID-19. But right before we get into it, we do have a video we want to play from Honorable Premier Panton. Good day, Cayman. I uh, just wanted to send you a quick hello from my quarantine headquarters. Um, kind of lost track now, but I think I may be on day seven now. So nearing the end probably feels like day 70 if I'm being honest about it um, you know what's interesting about this is it gives me a it gives me a, a clear understanding of how people feel um, having to go through extended isolation periods um, particularly when you know you're not feeling well or you have family members that are not feeling well I can I can just imagine how that is I'm feeling perfectly fine myself so I'm confident that um, when I do my test, that I will be clear. Um, I, I think the chances of me being infected and asymptomatic are probably next to none. Um, so fingers crossed. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to put my mouth on it, as as we say. Um, but I'm I'm sure I'll get there. But as I said, I, it gives me a clear understanding of a much clearer understanding of what people go through, and this is one of the reasons why. 
when I when I have been given details of people who are in isolation and who are having difficulties and perhaps may not have received the kind of calls that um, that they would like to have, um, not have it, not having had their expectations met in that respect, I like to be able to, t to telephone them myself, um, to talk them through, give them encouragement, and that's you know I want to do the same for Cayman right now. Um, we are obviously going through a period of um, of significant community transmission, but the answer to that is for us. We know what the answer is. The answer is that we need to adhere to the safety protocols, you know, the public health protocols, wearing masks, um, social distancing, sanitizing our hands. It's not hard, um, folks. We can do it, and we must do it together. Uh, this is not just for our own individual health, but it is for the, the collective health of the, of the country. Um, we do have a, despite our, our level of community transmission, we do have a relatively low number of people in hospital, um, but we have people who aren't feeling well at all. And I want to extend um, well wishes and speedy wishes for a speedy recovery um, to all of those folks who, both at home and in hospital, who aren't feeling very well today. Um, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a wet, rainy day um, for me, you know, rain or shine, being home in Cayman is just the best place in the world to be. And I hope that, um, you know, everybody stays safe. Um, let's try to continue to work together to maintain our, our collective public health. Um, let's all pray for those who aren't feeling well who, and those who are in hospital that they can recover quickly um, and get home to their loved ones. Um, you can, I wanted to show you as well, I got my quarantine geo-tracking band on. Um, no special privileges for me. That's exactly the way I like it. Uh, the law applies to everybody equally. So, Cayman, have a wonderful day. Please stay safe, be careful on the roads. Um, let's look after each other, let's care about each other, and our collective efforts will lead to our collective benefits for the, for the whole country. So thank you all, have a great day, love you all, take care. Well, that was Honorable Premier Panton exper uh, explaining a little bit about his um, experience in quarantine. And so uh, we are going to go ahead and get started. But uh, right before we do, just want to let you all know or ask you all to do me a favor. Please share this um, on your Facebook page or your YouTube. If you are watching, please let your friends know that we are live. Um, the discussion tonight is media coverage and COVID-19. I did reach out to um, all of the... Um, media groups in the uh, Cayman Islands and ask them to join us. We did have um, a couple of responses saying absolutely they'll join. And um, joining us tonight, Wendy Ledger from Cayman News Serv uh, Service. Um, welcome, Wendy. How are you doing tonight? You're muted, Wendy. Yeah, the technicalities of uh, video. What, what can you do? <laughs> it's great to be here, Kevin. Thanks very much for inviting me. No problem. We also have John Fleming. He's from Real Cayman News. Welcome, John. 
Thank you so much, Kevin. Great to be here. Wonderful. And then I know April come in. She said she's going to try to join us a little later on if she's able to. She's still finishing up some of her, her work duties, but hopefully she's going to be able to join us later on um, for the discussion. And again, I did reach out to everyone. Not everyone agreed um, to come on, but either way, we still want to at least have this discussion to let everyone know some of the challenges it, it really takes to be able to report accurate information. You know, there's so much noise out there and, and there's a whole lot of things that, that are a lot of moving parts. And we want to make sure that people are kind of aware of it from a media perspective. So, um, you know, Wendy, let's uh, start with you and, and talk about some of the uh, comp competition we have um, in the media to deal with disinformation that's out there and be able to, to do our jobs. Sorry, Kevin, when you say competition to deal with mis misinformation, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at there. Like, do, do, help me out a little. Well, you, you know, there's a lot of information that's out there. Um, you know, people don't just now get news from Cayman News Service, from Cayman Road, from Cayman Real, uh, Real News, there's a uh, Real News Cayman, sorry. So there's a lot of other things out there that if you want to call it media or whatever it is, they're getting information from all sorts of sources. So, you know, our jobs as journalists is to try to get factual information on out there to individuals. So, yeah, how, okay. how I'm, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're working in a changing environment. And, you know, we've all known for quite some time that social media was a game changer when it came to media. It's it's made things very, very different. But I think hearing Cayman, um, the situation isn't, quite as competitive as it used to be uh, to a certain extent um, we're dealing with perhaps um, more social media now than we are with uh, genuine media well when I say genuine media it's, that's the wrong word because it's it's all genuine it's just it's different we don't have tv anymore as you know we don't have so much radio news anymore we don't have we only have the compass that's really um well, in fact, even the Compass, I understand, now only prints once a week, so we we, we barely have any print media. Um, I think, you know, um, social media is taking over everywhere, and, and it, it's the same in the in the Cayman Islands, and that, that makes it very difficult because who who checks who on, on social media? And, and, and we know it's that instant, the instant desire to post immediately, you get wind of something. Um, and that's not that's not journalism. That's you know blogging, social media, or whatever. Journalism is fact checking. Journalism is is going and finding stuff out. Absolutely. And I'm just going to go ahead and add April uh, to the conversation. She did join. Um, so welcome, April. But right before we get to you, I believe you might have some background noise because when I added you to the screen, I'm hearing some noise. But John, to the question, um, you're a young um, young man. And of course, you're, you're a lot younger yeah. than all of us. What about your, your thoughts on the question? Oh, sorry, Kevin. I'm just having some feedback issues. Um, oh, we're all... Hang on, I can hear you now. Perfect. Yeah, to the question that Wendy was addressing, you want to kind of share your thoughts on it? Well, yeah, well, social media has been a game changer in the media landscape here. You know, there's meme pages that pop up all the time in Cayman. You know, there's there's loads of pages and they post they post whatever they need to be posted. But I think that um, the competition in Cayman isn't as fierce maybe in the U.S. I know or in, just in like the whole media landscape in the world, you know, we're all here today gathered. We're all from different outlets. 
but we're all here gathered to discuss the issues in COVID-19. So I think there is some, you know, like there is sort of like a bond, if you would, because it's we're a small jurisdiction, you know, we all have to report on the same stories. So yeah, that's what I would say on that. And April, welcome to the discussion. I know you really don't need to be introduced because everyone knows you in the Cayman Islands. If they don't, I'm not sure where they're living. <laughs> That's not always a good thing, Kevin. Not always a good thing. <laughs> so, but yes, no, COVID-19 really um, has posed a real significant challenge um, to try to get um, news and information out there. And um, there's a lot of different things out there. You, you go on to social media, you go on to different websites to you know, try to figure out what someone is saying. Um, April, I'll go ahead and, and ask you, how do you sort through facts versus crap? Ooh, that's a good question, isn't it? And sometimes it is hard to do. Um, you know, I, I find it particularly difficult with there being so much information on the internet in general, right? So, and I, and I you know, I came in late, sorry, I was still working. <laughs> um, but it's, what Wendy said about fact-checking is one of the most critical components of that. So just because someone has said something um, doesn't make it true. And by the way, that's even people who I trust. Just because they say something doesn't make it so. Um, and so there is that process of, um, you know, calling other sources, uh, digging up the actual documents that allegations are based on. You know, sometimes it is as simple as the definition of something that's being used. You know, I'm embarrassed to say, but sometimes I've got to go back to Google and look again and, you know, go to a source that I actually know historically provides accurate information. So, I mean, it, it's... It is a lot of work sometimes to get to the bottom of whether something is true or not. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge is that actually takes time. I mean, it does take experience too. And this is not a poke at you, young man, young man <laughs> at all. Um, it just, you know, sometimes you develop over time an instinct that what you're being told or what you're reading isn't quite right. There's just something off about it. And that may be based on prior stories you've covered or, you know, conversations you've had. So you sometimes just get an instinct that I know they're saying this, but something doesn't sound right. And you have to take the time to check that out. And I think that's actually the disadvantage for journalism proper is that it takes a lot of time sometimes to get to the bottom of one tiny component of the story, let alone all the other things that are coming you know, out all day long and all night long now <laughs> with the internet being what it is. So why should people trust the Cayman Islands news organizations that are out there? Wendell, have you start that off? Because really, why should they trust what you write or what Sandy, right? yeah. so it's a really good point. And, and I think, you know, that it's a really important one because people have got to start being a lot more discerning. I, I mean, I, I don't know what happened to people online. Like we all used to know when I was a kid, you know, that that you could pretty much trust the times. But the National Enquirer was probably not where you were going to get the most <laughs> honest news. So I don't know what's happened, but. The explosion of social media has certainly changed that. But it, it, it is, it, I, I think one of the things that we can say about Cayman is that it's a small jurisdiction, as John said. It has, we as journalists here all know each other pretty well. And you, you can track us down, you know. If I'm if I'm writing a, a, a load of old 
be on on my website you you can track me down and hold me over the course for it so I, i'm not going to take that risk of running into you in fosters and you bending my ear kevin because i've said some rubbish about you that weren't true so we have a certain and the politicians feel like that about us as well i mean everyone as soon as i write something if there's the slightest look on dotted i or on cross t somebody's on the phone to tell me about it so there is a actually in came in a really good um check and balance on on journalists because you you are very close to the the politicians you're close to the news as it's happening we're not we're not doing this we're not far away from the source like you might be in, in other jurisdictions like um in the united states and and i think you know we you, you can trust us because you can get us <laughs> you know we're we're easy pickings so but it doesn't mean to say that that doesn't actually also require us to continue to be honest and decent you can't you, you know, there are times when, um, you know, I learned very early on in Cayman, you can't always wait for the government to confirm everything because people people used to take the attitude here that if you if you didn't confirm it, then they won't write about it. You know, and it took them a long time to realize that actually that's not going to happen. We're going to write about it. So we're giving you a couple of days to be decent. Um, but if you haven't got back to us with your confirmation, if I know if I've got other sources, I'm running with it. And now you've missed the opportunity to, to give us your temp to two cents worth um th th those it's still very important that people our readers our viewers and our listeners continue to hold us to account john yeah well i have to agree with wendy you know we're a small jurisdiction everybody knows each other you know to put it bluntly like if you get something wrong we're all human we all make mistakes but if you like blatantly write something that's incorrect you will be chased down you'll get negative comments you'll get the email, you'll get a phone call. And, you know, I think it's our job to ensure that info that we use is correct. And we have to use the best sources available um, because, you know, we're providing the public with information. And, you know, if you provide the public with wrong information, it could just be, it could be a nightmare situation. April, on to you. Boy, um, it's now what is left to say, right? <laughs> but I think, um, you know, in all honesty, the accountability component of it, um, as Wendy touched on, I mean, look, this is my home. This is where I'm from. I grew up here. Um, sometimes it's not just my reputation um, on the line. It's my parents' reputation on the line too, right? <laughs> and my relatives. So the community does hold us accountable here. And sometimes um, it can be challenging. You know, you pass on a piece of information that you've attributed to a specific source and it's, you know, all in public domain, but someone on the other side of the story who you happen to know is like, that's completely not true. I trust you to find that the truth of this, you know, so that all of that is difficult sometimes, but I think it's really, really important because I think we all can get lazy, get tired, get apathetic about things, you know, over time and having, um, you know, sort of a vibrant listenership, audience, viewership, um, I think that's part of just like the press should be keeping uh, politicians honest. I think the public also needs to help keep the press honest, too. Um, I think it's a two way street on that. And by the way, you know, I don't enjoy it when I get it wrong either. Um, it's most humiliating. So I don't look at a bit. 
So there is also a bit of professional pride as well that I think, um, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I studied journalism. Um, I studied broadcast journalism specifically. And um, the first class I took was about ethics and journalism. You know, was, what does this mean? Why do we do this? What's it for? And, you know, that was a long time ago. But I think even today, when I start to go, I just can't be bothered with any of it today. <laughs> No, you, you know, you, you, you tap back into the part of you that realizes that our job here is to disseminate information and to do the best job that we can. We want to be as fair as possible. We want to be as honest as we can be. Um, it's just the nature of the, of the job. And Sandra, you host the Cold Hard Truth on Cayman Mall Road. And so what about you? Why should people trust you um, on your platform? Because they're going to curse me out if I get it wrong. <laughs> no, I think the point um, has been made that people really have a way of holding you accountable at a different level when it is such a small jurisdiction. You know, everywhere else in the world, media makes mistakes and they do a small um, retraction and it's like no big deal. People just get on with it. Here in this community, you know, it becomes a, a matter of discussion. It makes the news when the news gets it wrong. So um, it becomes a point of, of discussion as well. And um, I think as everyone has said, it really comes down to your reputation. And you know, I must admit that we have been in a very interesting position where initially, perhaps we weren't really that concerned about our reputation because we were just trying to you know, get the information out there. And there were times that we knew that it wasn't 100%, it may not even have been 80%. But as Wendy said, um, there was this, and we still do it even now, um, this sort of feeling that you have to put something out there in order to get the officials to respond. And it actually works really, really well from our perspective, because we have found that, you know, once the story goes up, they go, oh, well, this isn't quite right, or that isn't quite right. Now, what I found as a result of that is when we do reach out, we're actually getting a response um, in a little bit more of a timely fashion. And that's because we've had to push the envelope to say, you know what, the story is going to go out there in some form or another. If you want it to be 100% accurate or reflect your position, especially as it relates to um, government organizations and entities, then give us a response. And, um, you know, that, I guess, is a little bit of relationship building. And so, you know, we're slowly getting there. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely no one ever wants to to get it wrong because I feel like people will not let you live it down, you know, and um, so there's a lot of pressure, as April said, to try to con conform to at least accuracy as being the number one rule. And now that's exactly why I want to pivot on over to the discussion really from tonight, where we want to really discuss the challenges of being able to cover COVID-19, because I, I know there's been multiple times I have reached out as well. I know all of you have reached out to try to get some information. And, and like you said, Sandra, um, that it, it, it'll sometimes slow to get confirmed information. Um, it, it's been incredibly challenging to get some of that information out there as well. And, and that also leads to, to some of the public being a little upset or inaccurate information getting out there. But April, yes, yeah. you want to kind of pick that up a little bit? and, and That's we'll... a tough one for me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry you know, so here's the, you know, here's the situation. And for those who maybe don't, don't see the nuance here, Radio Cayman is, um, what's our slogan? We're the voice of the people, right? <laughs> so we have talk shows, we have newscasts, we are 
connected to the government, but it's not like the government sits there and goes over the news scripts every day and tells us we can't do things. It's not that way at all. But we do have sort of an extra burden of responsibility, and it's a good burden to have to say, we really need you to you know, confirm this or um, say something because we're a government owned station for goodness sake, you know? So there is that, and that's a real thing. I'm gonna take my journalist hat off for a second though and say, I do understand the other side of my brain understands where someone is not willing to put out a statement yet because they haven't had a chance to get all the facts together. And there's this desire to present like the whole you know, version of everything with all the details and it should all be correct. And every nuance and word ironed out and it goes through 16 approvals. I understand that that's one of the challenges that governments in particular um, struggle with. But the media side of me says, you don't have to say everything right away. Um, you can say something and come back with more later and clarify and confirm and expand. And so um, at the risk of getting myself in trouble, which I don't have it so far, so, so good. I think um, it is one thing that I would encourage actually public officials to do is to maybe not try to be so perfect about the information, just be a bit speedier sometimes about at least letting the public know that you are working on it, um, that you're double checking the information. I, I think um, perfection sometimes relates, it, it causes distrust between the people who are supposed to be you know, giving the information and the general public. And I, I just think a little, don't worry so much about every graphic being perfect or, you know, um, every, every, you know, 17 people approving. Keep it simple. Keep it clean. Answer the questions uh, quickly. If you say something incorrect, correct it. And I think that actually would build um, trust for everyone all around on an ongoing basis. And yes, it is challenging for us to know how, um, what kind of information to send out there. Um, but as Wendy and, and now Sandra both know, and John, you too, because you're relatively, you know, you're relatively new to the game. Um, it is it's very difficult to say to, to your audience, I can't tell you anything because no one will answer me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, want to pick that up as well? Yeah, I, I think we're going through a period of time right now when when what April was talking about is is really really relevant. Um, we have this situation now with the the figures and 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 the what's coming out, what's not coming out. Right now, people really want that information. We know that public health officials who are busy sticking needles in people's arms and swabs at people's noses and answering the phone to people that are like you know crying and and dealing with a sudden mass um, sort of catalogue of people with all sorts of, of, of issues. We're not asking those people to give us the numbers. Government must have and should have people who collect data. And that data should be getting input into some kind of app or some kind of computer or some kind of database every single day, every single hour, every single minute even. The, the Premier was able, when he was on Sandra's show the other morning, to, to look at a, 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 a WhatsApp that it, or a message he'd got that had the actual figures on for that day of the people that were in hospital. So the figures are there. So there must be somebody that can give them to us. We're not expecting doctors to drop, drop their stethoscopes and come running to tell the press how many people have been admitted to the hospital. But it is really important 
the more you don't do it, the more you scaremonger and the more you make things worse. And even if, as April said, your graphics are not great, but you haven't got this bit done or you haven't got that bit done, they can do that later. But when it comes to the basic figures of what everybody needs to know, they should be on it and they should be giving it to us. Because otherwise, it it, it, it creates a volume, of a, a vacuum, sorry, of, of information into which all sorts of, you know, horrible <laughs> conspiracy theories mm-hmm. can converge. And I have, I have a great imagination, Wendy. I have a great yeah. imagination. So the longer it takes to, you give me some good information, even if it's just a lot of numbers, I will yeah. calm down. But the more yeah, exactly, time that yeah. goes, the more give me some numbers to shut me up. Yeah, give me some feed. Give me something. We just need to feed the new news monster because that's the way it is. Give us something, yeah. and we can put something up later. You can correct things right now. People want to know. They, and for some hard. reason, you know, public health seems to think that we shouldn't be. It's not important that we know how many people are in hospital or how many people tested. It is. Believe me, people want to know. The evidence is there on our on on the discussion groups on on both on our website on on the on the Facebook pages. It's the only thing that people are talking about. And development, of course, people are still talking about development. Yeah. And context about that data is important, right? So respectfully, yeah. sometimes the, the bunch of numbers that I may, may spit out at any given point that I've received in and of themselves may not be particularly valuable in that moment other than I want to know, right? Aside from that. But without the data, you don't ever get to the point where you can provide context on it. So you have to start with the information and then provide context. And yeah. so... Um, you know, I appreciate the desire to keep everyone sort of calm and, you know, trying to do the right things. I completely understand the desire to do that. But I also think that this entire, um, it's something about the way we have begun to consume content. Mm. It is so instant Mm -hmm. and we need it so quickly that you turn that off and you become the bad guy. And that's not what you want, right? Whoever you are disseminating information of this type, it's important that you do it as quickly as you can, as accurately as you can. And maybe you don't give it all at once. Maybe you give everything you can right now and we'll complain that you didn't give us everything. And in a couple hours, give us the rest of what you've got. Yeah. I think that will help in my view. Yeah, and I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I have to agree um, with both Wendy and April on this because I think we, that's kind of how, you know, CMR probably got to where we are in terms of the instantaneous nature of what we do. So, you know, somebody farts in East End, we're going to tell you about it. And so there becomes this expectation that we've, you know, fed into that people get information right away. Um, now that we are being a little bit more cautious, sometimes I'm actually, I know about something and I'm in the background trying to verify and get the facts and people are messaging me, well, why don't you have this up? Because we've kind of created this expectation that you just throw it out there and you just put it up. But, you know, I'll say to them, yep, I'm totally aware of this situation right now, but I'm trying to see what this is all verify about. It. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we've got two stories today that we have sat on, uh, both involving, you know, minor children that we actually didn't do anything about because I'm trying to figure out what the story is even. Um, so, you know, especially with COVID, I think there's a requirement to be that much more cautious when you hear these stories, when you've got people. I mean, Kevin can testify to this. Mm-hmm. For example, we had a, a child who said, you know, they had developed a particular syndrome for, as a result of the vaccine. And they said that essentially the doctors at this hospital had told them at a particular hospital overseas had told them that. And I had the story all written and ready to go. And I said, hold on a second. I cannot responsibly 
publish this without speaking to that institution to hear what they really have to say. Because it's one thing to say, oh, somebody told me X, Y, Z. It's another thing to speak to that person and actually confirm, was this actually said to this family? And as it turns out, you know, they couldn't speak specifically to that case, but it, the story turned into a very different story once we actually spoke to, you know, um, the PR managers who had spoken to the physicians at that facility. But they needed time um, to be able to trace the patient because they're like, listen, we've got, do you remember, Kevin, how many physicians they have at that hospital? I think they said like I, yeah, 800 I, I or 1,200, some ridiculous number. Right, it was something crazy. Yeah, physicians at that hospital. And they were like, listen, we, we don't even know who this person is. You know, you guys live in the Cayman Islands. You just got a few people. One person does something. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, we know that person. Here in Miami, that's just another person to us. Like, it's not really all that relevant. And it doesn't ring a bell. And so, you know, they needed time to kind of even try to figure out what case we were, you know, inquiring about just to make a broader comment. Again, they wouldn't specifically comment on any particular um, patient, right? But going back to the whole thing with the COVID figures, um, I think the danger there is when you don't get, so for example, right now, we all have this delay in getting the numbers of who's vaccinated and who isn't vaccinated. That seems to be a particular interest to people, especially the um, pro-choice or anti-vaxxers, because they think that that information is being withheld on purpose for a reason. And they don't get that, you know, public health is just really overwhelmed and they're really busy. And the way in which that information is actually verified isn't how they think. So it's not a person who walks into the hospital and says, okay, I've done a PCR test, I'm positive, and yes, I'm vaccinated. Like they can't take their words for it. They actually have to go back to their database and verify that they actually have been vaccinated. Um, and, you know, the average person, I think, on the street doesn't necessarily appreciate the public health protocols that have to be followed and why that information is lagging. And they automatically assume that there's some other conspiracy-based reason why that information isn't available. And it's really frustrating for me because I get the questions every single day. Like, why are they not telling us how many people, like today we found out, you know, in the hospitalization numbers, how many are vaccinated versus anti-vaccinated. Now they want more. They said, well, of the ones on oxygen or the three that are in ICU, how many of those are vaccinated? Because the point still could be that maybe they're all vaccinated people and you're trying to hide that from us. Right. And there is this question of um, public interest versus public, you know, curiosity, I suppose, or public benefit. You know, you just because I want to know something doesn't mean in every instance that I, I'm going to get to find that information out instantly, but it is truly significant from a public health perspective and a government perspective um, to ensure that you are as transparent as possible, particularly where things like data and numbers are concerned. It, it's just, it, it's essential, I think, for, um, it, it has a lot to do for me with democracy and how that all works. Um, I think if you appear repressive, people will feel as though you're being repressive. So it's kind of important to, for us to keep asking. And um, you know what? I, I, I Public health, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for in the circumstances. It's just a wave of information that you're trying to keep up with and verify and put out there. You know, it's tough. But I think what April just this pressure will make more happen, you know, get better infrastructure. It's it's really important what April just said about um public health. They they shouldn't have to be deal dealing with it. 
you know, where are where are the epidemiologists? Where are the people that collect data? Clement has fallen down in government. We seem to spend huge amounts of money on all sorts of things, but data is really, really important, and we've never really seemed to think it is. And you know, it, it seems crazy to me that here we are in the in the depth of an epidemic doing um, a census, and yet we we don't have any way to collect important information on a day-to-day basis we know so little about so much mm-hmm. and and it, it it really does worry me because as sandra said earlier you know every time there's an absence of data it is filled with a conspiracy theory yeah i'd have to agree with you i'd have to agree with all of you um public health are obviously inundated with questions from us and questions from everybody but i really do feel it's important for the government you know to get this information out you know in a timely manner um, obviously, they need to get the information right. But, you know, if the information is delayed, we have people, you know, you know, they they resort to fear and they, people get scared and people people. It's a very stressful time for people right now, you know, especially with the recent um, COVID outbreaks. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important for information just to be shared. Yeah. Yeah. Wanna- and, and just um, to Wendy's point, I do know that an epidemiologist is coming. (laughs) They're on the way, but this begs the question as to why at this late stage, um, you know, they're now just coming. I mean, and this this really, um, I think, demonstrates a little lack of maybe forward thinking that this particular government um, needed to put so much in place when, I mean, there's a little bit of politics here, but this is how politics impacts all of our lives, when in fact, we should have had an epidemiologist on board from the second this was named a pandemic by the World Health Organization over 12 months ago. You know, we should have seen immediately the necessity to have someone who has that level of experience. And I think it's a little bit concerning that um, the powers that be didn't see that. And I, I don't know if that falls on the elected officials or if that falls on, you know, the medical health experts, such as the chief medical officer to have gone to the elected officials to say, you know what, we need an epidemiologist on board like yesterday and let's start the recruitment process immediately. Uh, I know it's happening and it's coming and I think the person's supposed to be here by January, but um, you know, I appreciate that this is like two years into the pandemic. Yeah, January's a little late, isn't it? It really is. And, and to that point, um, and back to, you know, trying to get data and information, because I know the data is there because I have had, um, you know, the communication team tell me, yes, I have it. However, I am waiting for approvals on it, yeah, yeah. which is completely ridiculous because, again, on one of the previous CMR COVID spotlight shows, I brought on an expert who is, he analyzed the Kim Nines data, but he's analyzing the data based on other websites that are out there and other tools that does have the accurate data. However, he needs some more individual data to be able to do a a proper analysis to give Cayman a real proper forecast and picture. He's done it for the United States and this is what he does. He's been doing this for a very, very long time. So I've asked for the the things, the data that he needs. I was told, yes, you could go ahead and get the data. It's not public right now, but we will get you the data. And then they said that we have the data, but we're waiting on someone to approve it. I don't know who that someone is who needs to approve it, but I have not yet received it. But based on at least some of the, in the, the, the initial data that was presented, um, it looks like the Cayman Islands is doing exactly what he predicted. And I'm going to go ahead and play that video from that show now so everyone could kind of just be reminded of, of, of what 
um, was, was shared. And uh, just go ahead and uh, have a watch of this and then we'll get back to the discussion. Asking when uh, can we predict that the pandemic will fade out? Like I said, 250 models, you know, are what we select and make the forecast about, and this is the variation that you're seeing. Now, because you got 250 models, we can work out the probability of elimination, and the inverse of that is probability of resurgence, right? So that is by looking at how many of the 250 curves go to extinction, zero, and how many will actually uh, recover, you know? So the blue line here is the probability of elimination. And if you look at with the current social measures and vaccination, you know, you'll hit 95% chance of elimination on February 4th, 2022. That's what our, we are forecasting. The first week of uh, uh, February, you'll have only 5% 5 5 chance of resurgence. Uh, after that, the chance of resurgence will become smaller and smaller, meaning the chance of elimination will increase so you can become safe. Okay, so um, before that, I mean, right now, uh, if you look at it, we are about 50%, maybe chance of elimination. So it's very risky. You need to hit about 90 or 95%. That's when you can say we can fully uh, uh, reopen the economy. So that is the date that we are forecasting with current social measures. If you've released uh, all social measures from today onwards, you will reach that November 4th. That is because the infection will burn through the uh, remaining susceptibles. And I, I didn't uh, forgot to point out, that is about 17% are currently still susceptible. Uh, they will burn through the susceptibles and then they will decline very quickly. And because of that, um, you know, you will reach uh, elimination much earlier, November 4th, 2021. But the trade-off is a lot of people are going to get infected. Look at the numbers here. You know, uh, at peak, we're hitting 700 people um, uh, compared to the current social measures. You know, um, the, the peak is like, not peak, you know, some of the curves can go up to about 140 or so. Here, some of the curves can go up to about 700, just above 700. So that so is the trade-off. Just to clarify that. So you're saying oh. um, that the risk, if we just continue, just completely open up, Mm -hmm. of sometime in the not so distant future having somewhere between seven to eight hundred people possibly yep. hospitalized getting infected as yep. opposed to if we kind of slowly methodically open up slow over time mm -hmm. you're looking at somewhere around um no more than about uh 100 to 150 yes. people becoming yeah. sick and hospitalized yeah. or so. that is at the extreme remember the median is much lower if you look go with the median this is the median prediction, this black line here, only 30 cases. What I'm showing you is this variance, each of those curves, right? Got it. And this median is only 430, but you can go up to 700. Here, the median is 30, but you can go up to 100 over so here. See? If you're planning for doomsday, you're planning for the worst case scenario, but you're looking somewhere in the middle, yeah. it's kind of where it will probably fall. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, but there are, uh, and the other thing about full release that, you know, maybe we don't appreciate is that full release will allow you to get to acquired immunity faster. Okay, uh, in theory, right? Because a lot of people getting, uh, getting, uh, they get infected, and then they recover and become immune. That can occur faster. That's why your chance of elimination is, you know, is much, uh, can occur much earlier as well. 
so it's always a trade off increasing and overwhelming your hospital system yes but you will overwhelm your hospitals so that is a dangerous way of getting herd immunity in other words uh, the safer way is through vaccination Yeah, so, I mean, again, we, if we had data, we'd be able to do better predictions. That showed us, for your knowledge, too, was about a month ago. So, again, things would need to be readjusted, but no data ever, ever came to be able to do re, um, redo the predictions to see what's going on. But, again, you could see, you know, with, you know, a couple hundred cases occurring all the time, we're, we're certainly, you know, seeing that, that burn-through rate and would really love to be able to forecast how soon is the Cayman Islands going to be out of it? And I'm sure people want to know. They want to be able to make their plans for Christmas and other things that are coming up. Mm -hmm. And you know what's interesting about that, Kevin, is after that show, I mean, we had a number of persons um, reach out to us who said that they had been told, and I don't know who would have told them, I guess, on the medical side, that the information that even that epidemiologist was able to put together in a very detailed um, format was not something that was possible to do for the Cayman Islands. And so, you know, I, I was like, well, this total stranger could take relatively limited information and be able to uh, extract such detailed information and predictions from it. Even if he's in the 80 percentile in terms of accuracy, that's better than nothing. You know what I mean? And so you need to go back to the drawing board and question the people who are telling you that it cannot be done. And again, you know, I think this is to be fair to the powers that be, a lot of times they are relying on people who are supposed to be experts, but, you know, we oftentimes need to look outside of the jurisdiction um, to speak to people who have the level of experience that is required during the times of a pandemic. Because we've never, no one here has ever done anything like this. Um, you know, media has never covered a pandemic of this magnitude ever. Uh, you know, H1N1 might have been around, you know, Wendy in, in April probably did a little bit of that, but that was nothing like this. So this is a very different um, yeah. game altogether, right? And I think that, you know, no person in the world at the beginning of this pandemic could say that they were COVID uh, expert or coronavirus expert, but now there are people who are living this day in and day out, and they have seen thousands of patients. They've seen, you know, millions of, of um, extracts of data and you know studied all that information in detail that's what they do for a living and i think it's been unfortunate that we haven't tapped into more of those persons and that's why i think kevin has done such a fantastic job with the covid spotlight series is because he has had access to a lot of those individuals i mean to have nurses who are on the front line every single day sit down on a platform and talk to the commanding people about what their experiences have been, what it's like to actually be a nurse and answer your questions, you know, an ER nurse and what it's like to see patients dying at a rate that they've never seen them. I mean, I think that brings it home because we've been existing in such an incredible bubble that brings it home and adds an element of reality that we have just not experienced. That's probably too, in my view, why some of the behaviors that we are exhibiting now um, you know, you don't practice riding a bike. <laughs> and if you didn't ride the bike for very long, um, you kind of know what to do, but it's not that sort of, you know, intuitive flow and I go down the road happily and don't fall over. Um, because we haven't even in many respects experienced the reality of, of any of what went on in the rest of the world other than what we saw in our phones and on TV, we're 
we're adapting, we're, we're sort of trying to figure out how we feel, how we behave, what we do, um, as though this just happened. So the rest of the world's been going through it. Absolutely. We're suddenly going, you know, I thought I understood what needed to be done, but I can't get between my front door and the car without trying to find where the mask went and did I put any sanitizer and, oh shoot, I just touched 300 things. I should, you know, it's, it's just the practice, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I think we're in a different situation. And um, I don't always believe that you need to go elsewhere for expertise. I just believe you always should look for the best of the best, both locally and internationally, and take advantage of the resources, the information, the expertise that they have to offer. It can be helpful in so many ways. Absolutely. Kevin, we do have a few questions. Um, you sure do. Our audience involved. One of them, uh, Wendy, uh, this one is uh, to you actually. Pressed it and I double tapped it, it looks like. So uh, known as asking, uh, how do you feel about having to squeeze a number of questions that you might have into one or two allowable questions? I believe that's referring to the wonderful press briefings where you, you don't have a lot of ability to ask questions there. Wendy, can you hear us? Yeah, sorry. Um, you asked me about the press briefing, right? Right, so the question from one of our viewers is asking, how do you feel about having to squeeze a number of questions that you might have um, into one or two allowable questions? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, it, it is quite difficult because there are, pe people have so many questions at the moment because it's, as April said earlier, it's still new for us. We went a whole year when we didn't really have it and people need it, people just needed some reassurance and, and, and the best thing to do that was to, answer the questions um i don't know what happened at the last press briefing as to why everybody was shut down but it, it didn't look good it didn't go down well and we haven't had one since so none of this is helping it's quite as i said earlier it's just quite simple we need people who are data experts i'm sure we have them i'm sure we could have prepared for this it didn't need to be that difficult there's only seventy-one thousand of us at the worst at the top end this is not, we're not dealing with a huge nation here. It wouldn't have been difficult to keep on top of it and just keep feeding people the information that they crave until, as, as April said, we get maybe used to it. I don't think, I think your scientist guy the other day was, was really interesting and I think he's pretty right. This isn't going to last very long for us because so many people are vaccinated. It, it, it's going to come, it's going to hit it, you know, before, I, I think we're probably going to hit, the peak well before Christmas and, and, and well into the new year, it's going to be pretty much going to be over in terms of like, you know, a lot that we won't have this amount of, we've got some way to go yet. I think an awful lot more people are going to get infected yet, but it's going to come down and it, and, and hopefully not too many people will die. But in order to get through this, the government needs to be far more forthcoming and stop allowing the conspiracy theorists theorists to fill that sort of vacuum of silence and it, it really the last press briefing really didn't help any at all april you want to kind of comment on your views on on that question as well too? i have such mixed feelings about these things right so i'm you know prior to coming back home to cayman i was fairly used to you uh, press briefings were pretty structured and you you knew you would have x amount of questions to ask and i think that's important um, sometimes though, you can tell that we're still processing information before the, that we've just gotten. And 
yeah, we're not as concise or as quick or as together and the press briefings do draw on for a long period of time. I, I, I do have to say though, I think that if there was more frequency of opportunity to um, have these conversations, that then there might be fewer questions. But, you know, look, we have Sandra who will get up in the morning and have people on her show, people come on for the record, talk today. Um, you know, they, they, it's not that they're not accessible at all. It is just that when it is focused around this particular subject, you don't want a five hour press conference. You do want the media to, to be a little more succinct and concise, yes. but at the same time, it's really important that clarifications are made and that important questions are answered. So I'm the first one to advocate for just tell me there are only going to be two questions and I will work. And in fact, I'll call all the other media and say, okay, I want to ask about these two things. So I'll do these and you guys can do whatever you want. Yep. I don't mind that in, in the, in the um, effort to make it more streamlined and more concise, yes. but it's so important that people do feel as though their concerns are being addressed and that their questions are being answered. Yeah. And the press briefing, you know, the, the, the new guys and gals are following the, what the old guys and gals had in place, which was the press briefing was the place to do that. That may change with the new government and they may decide to do it differently and that's fine. But it is important to communicate that and plan for that a little bit. And I think that would help with that, that feeling. Wendy and I don't have to be on YouTube live asking everybody's questions all the time. We will do stories about the things that we ask about, true, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we still need to be able to have an opportunity to ask those questions. And sometimes it can be difficult for a, a politician or a civil servant <clears throat> to show up on every single show and every single thing individually. So the press briefings did provide us an opportunity to do that collaboratively. But yeah. if it's gonna take four hours, okay, I, I yeah. got you. But let me know how many questions I'm gonna get and I'm happy to really work hard <laughs> to get them sorted out and focused. And to, to April's point, I mean, I agree. I don't have an issue with um, actually being limited, believe it or not. I think just getting advance notice the last time they did it would have been nice. And I understand that that wasn't necessarily um, a government decision more than the planners in the background saying that the press briefings are going so long that they're actually noticing that people are dropping out. So the very people that you're asking the questions for, which hopefully are the listeners, are not that engaged. Uh, once the Q&A segments like start, like you, and I see the numbers, my, I do watch the live stream numbers and they drop off significantly after the first couple of questions. And I think there was also an element of some um, media houses asking like seven or eight questions. And then because that took so much time, other people may not have even gotten a chance to ask any questions or were then limited to one. So I think a little bit more equity in how the, the questions are done makes sense to me. If we're going to limit it to two or three, then that's great. Um, you know, there were some media houses who might have more than one reporter there, and each reporter felt like they were entitled to ask a question. So I think it's just a little bit of overkill. And um, honestly, I think that some of the questions are being asked, the detailed questions, are not questions that you need ask, answered or um, yeah, answered at a press briefing. That's something that you could email the relevant officials like public health and so on and get those responses to. But I do need to point out that some of us are broadcast and some of us are print yes. and some of us yeah. are such and such. And so for someone like me, I actually don't care if you see me or not or hear me or not. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about do I have clean audio that I can take and make individual stories right. so that this information is disseminated over time. And so that is my primary focus. It, it's 
can we get everything we can possibly get out of this? And so, so that in the coming days, people have an opportunity to get small chunks of this information um, on an as needed basis. Yes. And so we have Rachel um, making a comment in there. I think it would help if the Cayman Islands government hired a communications expert to manage all streams of media and proactively tackle conspiracy theories with factual videos designed to uh, be passed around on WhatsApp and uh, the disinfo on, uh, that is on social media needs to be tackled uh, at source daily, clearly and fast. And um, to Rachel, there, there actually is a communication team and, and also this is some of the things that I have um, highlighted for them as well too. I mean, this is kind of what you need to do. Um, that's what I do in the state of Florida. As you all know, I am in the state of Florida. Um, currently I work for the Florida Department of Health and I am that uh, communications expert for the state of Florida in Hillsborough County's health department to do exactly that. And so I offered some of my thoughts and, and I really feel that it was not being done, which is exactly why you're watching the CMR COVID spotlight because it wasn't being done. And I wanted to make sure that it was starting to be done. So I brought on a lot of the experts that I have access to, experts that I have used to do my job um, to bring it to the Cayman Islands because ultimately I'm from the Cayman Islands. I, my, most of my family are still in the Cayman Islands and I love each and every one of you in the Cayman Islands. And I want to make sure that I am doing my absolute best to do what I can to help everyone that I love, which is you all. That's a lot of eyes there, Kevin Wattler. So for <laughs> those of you who don't know, Kevin and I worked together kind of a little long time ago. <laughs> and Kevin was the guy who first um, used BlackBerry um, Messenger to send out news alerts. And <laughs> Kevin is one of my favorite people, but he also drove me nuts sometimes. I was like, Kevin, I can't give you another phone to continue to text message more people. And Kevin is the one who also um, had to deal with that difficulty of, is, is this story okay to go out? We don't know everything. I'm always like, calm down, slow down. And he was like, go, 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 go. And so between us, there was a lot of push and pull, right? Which I think was very, very healthy. But kept to Kevin's point, he believes very firmly that you need to provide information to people so that they can make informed choices. And retaining the information and waiting to curate it too carefully can sometimes lead to distrust. And also, frankly, we make stuff up. And so, you know, Kevin, you, I, I'm, you know, I'm with you on this one. The more information that you can provide, the more interesting, um, intelligent, informed people are about what's going on, the better choices they can make. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I, and I live by it's all about the right message at the right time from the yeah. right person that ultimately saves lives. Because ultimately, what I say is going to reach some people. What April Cummings says is going to reach some people. What mm -hmm. Sandy Hill says is going to reach some people. Yeah. What John Fleming says, I mean, we all have a part to play. We all have different people that will listen to us. And so ultimately getting people that information <clears throat> so they can make these informed decisions. You know, it, the data is so clear. We want people to really you know, understand it in a way that they can understand it and again, get that message from the right person so we could ultimately reach as many people as we can. Absolutely. Yep. And I, I think that that's important. I yep. mean, you know, we're not all things to all people. So, you know, there's some people who will never listen to CMR, but, you know, they'll listen to Real Cayman News or, you know, they've been fans of CNS forever. So they're going to listen to CNS and so I think from a collaborative perspective, that is where collectively um, the media should see themselves as, as allies with one another 
and yeah. trying to get the message out there to as many people as possible. Yes, we all have um, a uniqueness that we will bring to our individual platforms. And that's good. You know, there are people who love April style and there are people who um, really love Wendy's uh, wittiness, you know, her English humor. <laughs> um, you know, John is, is relatively young, so he's probably drawing a much younger crowd um, as well. And so, yeah, I think that that's extremely important because ultimately, I think we all have the same goal of wanting to get accurate information, especially as it relates to this pandemic accurate information out there that will educate people and make them feel empowered to make the right decisions about, you know, what they need to do next. So like I see um, Carol just made the point that, you know, a lot of the Pirates Week events have basically been um, postponed or they're com completely canceled for this year. And yet people are out there having, you know, Pirates Week parties. And, um, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. And that goes against all of the public health advice that is actually coming out from the officials. And I think people need to understand the implications of that and the implications of continuing to spread um, the coronavirus um, in this community. And as Wendy rightly said, we're gonna start having people die. And I don't know if for some people it will take that for them to then start to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, I would hope not, you know, because I think we can prevent that if we were just all a bit more cautious. But sadly, there's some people who just, you know, they think that this isn't gonna impact us that um, severely. And so even if they're positive, they're still going about their lives as though COVID isn't here. Yeah, unfortunately, I think, you know, what Sandra said about people dying and, 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 the, and this is why it's important that people understand the data because although, we are doing very well in terms of most people are not sick. There, just by just by numbers, there will be some older people or people with comorbidities, or and people who have not been vaccinated that will die now. That that that's just the way it is. And you know, I, I really I I would not have wanted to be premier when that first came on in passes away because but it's going to happen whether it's this week next week or the week after it's almost certain that it's going to happen now it could be that that person is very very elderly and they would have died in any event but the fact is they now have covid so it will be attributed to that and so it, it's very important for people to that's why data is so important so that people understand what our risk was likely up to, to have been you know once we decided to open the borders in any event this was going to happen as it goes it came earlier I, I don't know I, I'm not sure I agree with the opposition that it was um, as a result of cutting the the, the um, quarantine time necessarily I, I, I genuinely believe that it was probably um, something completely different and I think you all know what we all think it was um, but it, it, it's it it was it, the government should have been talking about this kind of thing and the data yeah. about what would happen when we opened up. That that was the problem that they didn't it, constantly saying, "Oh, I hope no one dies." It, it, that was never going to happen. As soon as we made a decision to open up, we had eliminated, and then we would decided, "Well, we're not. We, you know, we can't stay in this bubble forever. So therefore, we have to move to opening up." And and we knew with the Delta variant that. Because these scientists like um, Kevin had on the show, they've already shown that these things were going to happen. And so it is, that's why it's so crucial that government, A, keeps the data coming 
and that it shows that it's ready. And I, I, I think, and I don't think it's necessarily the elected government, because why would a bunch of elected people just six months ago suddenly become experts? Our, our own technocrats have had an easy ride and they weren't ready. They were far from ready. And I think, yeah. you know, we have people mm -hmm. in certain positions that are not qualified to be in those positions. Yeah. Mentioning no names, but, you know, there's some very significant senior medical people who should not be in the job that they're in. <laughs> and you know yeah. it, and I know uh, it, and everybody yeah. that listening knows it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, and even in the past, and we have um, starting last year when I think there was one instance that really sticks in my mind where there was a comment made about um, whether a, a person who's asymptomatic can actually pass the virus on. I don't know if you remember this, Wendy, because I think you mm -hmm. actually did a story on this and you questioned this because yeah. the statement was made at a press briefing that no, they can't. And I was reading information from both the World Health Organization, the CDC and everybody else, like new emerging data. Uh, this was early on in the pandemic, but that was saying that yes, asymptomatic people um, can, you know, um, transmit the virus onto other people. And yeah. here we are in Cayman having like top level medical experts tell us that they can't. And when they came back and apologized and corrected later on, they said, oh, well, you know, we were reading CDC information that was clearly outdated, I must yeah. say. You know, because I, I was a bit obsessive about like reading every single um, coronavirus related article, all the latest data information that was coming out. And I thought to myself, how is it that I knew that? I'm just a yeah. little person. And the medical experts didn't know that. Like I, that made me very, very uncomfortable in the moment. And, and I think, yeah. When, uh, what I was going to say, because it's in what you've just said, is how many times have we heard them say, oh, we're going to learn from everybody else's mistakes? Yeah. And they so mm -hmm. haven't, because that's the thing that what you've just said is exactly the type of thing that that, that that should have happened. Like, as we've had all of this time to read everything, the CDC has changed its position on all sorts of things lots of times. It was an involving yeah. from the beginning. Nobody's an expert in this. But yeah. you know what? We are two years down the line. And if people had been reading everything that they should have been reading, and if we'd have had proper qualified people in the position, and we've had plenty of time, to know that we needed a proper qualified person to be running the show by the time we got to this stage, mm -hmm. you know, and we didn't do that. And and these are the things that are kind of irritating because it's like now, oh, well, we're going to blame the politicians. So poor Wayne is going to be the person that has to preside over the first Caymanian death. It's not his fault. Yeah, exactly. So, so I will say this. Um, and probably shouldn't, but um, I do believe that at times we, especially when we're in positions of authority, that sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees because we are literally in the weeds of the thing. And um, I've been at the top and bottom of my food chains multiple times in my life so far. And sometimes it is very, very difficult when you're in the middle of the sprint to see the big picture. So you say the things, but you're not necessarily truly seeing the big picture. And I think that's something, I mean, it's a lesson for all of us. I, I, I couldn't point the finger at one single person and say, oh my gosh, you know, 
we, you should have done all the things. But I do think that we have to learn, not just from the mistakes from other countries, but the mistakes that we make ourselves and improve upon them on an ongoing basis. I think that's critical, not just for the pandemic, but just in general for how we improve the quality of life in this country and how we do things going forward. We should always know that what we did today may have been what we thought was the best effort, but tomorrow we have to strive to do better. That's just how we should be behaving on an ongoing basis for the, the for the greater good. I'm all about making my my next mistakes far better than the last mistake I made, <laughs> and that makes good sense. John, I see you wanted to say something. Yeah. Um, well, I think that you know we have a responsibility to report facts. I've said that now a lot, but you know there's a podcast that goes on in this country that promotes conspiracy theories of COVID related issues. And, you know, I think that if CIG did, you know, they can't stop this particular podcaster from saying what he wants to say, but, you know, the marketing materials, and I think the marketing materials from CIG have been great so far, but I think there's some information that we could be sending to these people who are COVID skeptics, you know, just, you know, effects of COVID, you know, what happens if you get COVID? Because we've been living in this bubble for so long now. Obviously, the bubble has burst and, you know, the tables have turned in many ways for COVID. But we were living in a bubble of, oh, I don't have to wear a mask. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm not going to get COVID if I'm, you know, eating at a restaurant or drinking at a bar. So I think now we really need to focus on proper information. And as media houses, I think we play a role in this. You know, we have to report on the facts. And the fact is that, you know, COVID is out there and it's dangerous. One of the things I've noticed, because I've also done a reach out to a lot of people, hey, I want to hear your stories, um, and I want to be able to air that. And 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 so the moment they find out, oh no, it, you mean you want you don't want to just hear my story behind the scenes, but you will now want to tell people that I have COVID. Um, it's like it's almost like telling someone you have or you're living with HIV. It's like, oh no, 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 I don't want no one to know that I have COVID. Um, but isn't that the most important thing? I mean, it becomes not real if there's no human face connected to it, right? And, and Kevin, you and I know, we go a long way back on this. Mm -hmm. People tend to not want to be open and honest about things like their personal health, but telling and sharing those stories is, is truly critical to making the, the connection between the theory and the reality. You know, um, it's, it's one of the most important aspects from my perspective of a journalist's job. And it's very difficult to do that in KMAT sometimes because people, they're more than happy to tell you everything under the sun until you turn a camera on or a microphone on. <laughs> and then there's a great deal of resistance. And I just think that's unfortunate because those stories can help save other people's lives. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things that I've been kind of working on behind the scenes, um, trying to be able to do exactly that. Um, but again, finding people to be willing to go on the record and, and to share it. Um, and again, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge challenge. Um, but, but it's something that, you know, we really need people to help us so we could help others. Um, and, and that's for all of us. Doesn't matter who you go to. Ultimately, we want those stories shared. People, everyone's going to have a different experience with COVID. Um, 
but we want to hear those different experiences. Let people know what's going on. People want might ask your, your questions, whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Um, people just want to kind of get an idea, get that, if you want to call it anecdotal information, and then start connecting the dots. That's just that's just how human nature is. And, and so, you know, the more we talk about it amongst ourselves, the more we share the information to our friends, our family, and out publicly, it's just ultimately going to help everyone. So I'm urging everyone, I know a lot of people out there. I, I know personally a lot of people in the Cayman Islands that are, are living and, and have currently uh, the, the diagnosis of COVID. Um, and, and some are unvaccinated, some are vaccinated, but ultimately we, we really need you all to, to share your stories. And I know most of you are going to be um, okay. And I, I know one person that's in the hospital personally and, and I'm wishing them the best. Um, but again, we just, we, we really need those stories out there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's very difficult, however, though, because, you know, there's so much taboo with COVID at the moment. You know, if I go on the record and I tell people, oh, I had COVID or I have COVID, uh, people will be scared to, you know, for the risk effects, what's happening, you know, with themselves. But I think it would be really good to have some people, you know, in the community discuss their experiences, you know, because there are people who don't believe in COVID. Like, and that might sound crazy for me to say, but, you know, I'm just looking back at footage from the pro-choice protests and there's people saying like fake pandemic real genocide but that's because they're not hearing the effects of the disease so if we could find people if anyone could find someone who's had covid to share their experience it'd be really beneficial to the community and it, it was um if you don't mind my adding i think for me one of the most powerful um, stories was it came um, from a roundtable that the Cayman Islands government um, CIG TV organized, and um, it was really interesting. Um, and it made it hard for me to just completely disconnect from from it all, because you hear things day in day out, and you're just like, I just I can't hear anymore. I want to be done. And listening to what the doctor and what the doctor's family went through and the experience that they had, um, it was it you know what, it made an impact on me. And I think even not just about saving lives and the pandemic, but also part of what we do as journalists and reporters is we chronicle a, t a moment in time, right? And of what's happening in our lives about who we are and what our experiences are. And if we can't capture those moments because the human beings who are involved aren't talking or sharing those stories and those experiences, in a strange way, it almost erases the experience from, from, from our histories. And so not that that's the reason anyone but me is gonna think it's important, but I do think also sharing the reality. Um, not everyone's story of living with COVID is going to be that they had the worst thing in the world. For some people, it was mild or insignificant. For others, it you know it was a terrifying experience emotionally. Um, I just, I feel like, you don't want to go on without making sure you have captured some of the moments um, for the future and for the future generations so that they know what we lived and what we experienced and can learn from us. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, April, we're going to go ahead and start moving into the closing comments. So any final thoughts before we, we leave everyone tonight? No, I mean, I really appreciate you you having me on the show. Um, as you know, I, I've been quite supportive of the this COVID spotlight. I really do um, and I'm critical of everybody's work all the time, even my own, but I really did um, appreciate hearing from experts um, who maybe weren't in the middle of our trenches, but were in their own, reflecting on things here, um, the data modeling um, 
segment was incredible. And, and not just because I'm a nerd girl, but I really do like having an understanding of both the big picture as well as the, you know, the micro experience. Um, and I do want people to know that you know, sometimes it is frustrating to hear us journalists and reporters bumble our way through our questions and press briefings or ask a question that you swear they answered five seconds ago. But do remember that that is part of us doing our jobs. We want to make sure we understand what's going on as well, too, so that we can disseminate accurate information going forward. So we are definitely trying. We're not always going to get it right. Um, we're all a little different in how we approach it, but we do care very much um, about doing the right thing and providing information to the people of the Cayman Islands. Otherwise, to be honest, there are other jobs that would pay a lot more money and be a lot easier. Absolutely. Well, thank you, April. Wendy, what are your final uh, remarks for the night? Yeah, um, I think... I think what April said earlier about telling the stories is is important, but I'm more. I've always been more of a a, a reporter and a journalist than I have like a, a feature writer. And I think you know, facts and data and in a, in a pandemic are very important because they do paint the picture in a way. And and the human interest stories are going to be great. And and I've already sort of started collecting a few and I, and some they're so different and and so some of them are interesting some of them are funny some of them are tragic so these stories are going to be told but whilst it's going on i am still i, I have some major concerns that we we've just had the wrong people in the wrong jobs at the wrong time and it's a real shame because we've also been very lucky um, and I think, you know, that's another thing that it's, it's, that you can't get away from it as being a journalist that you have to kind of point out that actually, you know, where, when you compare us to the rest of the world and other places, you know, we've had a right old time here, really, to be honest. And, um, a lot of us enjoyed the, the period of time when there was no one here, you know, it was, you know, the Cayman without, it's a special time came in without tourists, but, um, over the next few weeks, the, the information that we seek is going to be critical because we are going to go through a rough ride. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. I think I think we all agree that there's there's going to be a rough ride ahead for the next month or so, maybe longer. Um, and it's going to be really important that government keeps on top of that and, and shapes, shapes the picture. And I, I hope they do a better job. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Wendy, for, for participating in this discussion. Thanks um, for having me on, Kevin. It's great to see you, man. It's been a long time. It really has. Don't be John, a stranger. <laughs> no, no. Well, certainly I will not be a stranger at all. <laughs> John, what are your final thoughts for tonight? Well, I just want to thank you for hosting this. Um, thank Kamamara Road. You know, this Real Kamamara News started in the middle of the pandemic. It started last December. We're coming to our year anniversary. And... Um, I wouldn't be here without the support of Sandy. You know, she gave me so many pointers and tips and Wendy as well. You know, I've learned a lot from the journalists in Cayman. We have very fine journalists here in Cayman. So it's really been a great experience for me. Um, and I'm learning every day. So thank you so much for hosting this. And it's really great to share all this important information. You know, COVID-19 is so current. You know, this is probably the first time in history in Cayman that we are begging the government for information every single day because, you know, COVID-19, it just changes every single day.
Absolutely. Well, just want to thank everyone who's watching. I mean, we have just about 100 people that are still watching. Um, I will tell you, please uh, look out in the very near future um, for the latest data. I do see that we just, just received um, the, the latest information. Um, I'll just kind of read off um, some of the, the data. It says active cases. Currently, there are 2,661 cases with 15 people hospitalized. Um, since the last report, that's an increase of 186 cases. Um, 184 of them were in community uh, po community positives and then uh, two travel positives. In the Sister Islands, they added two new cases um, to their, their amount. For the numbers of people who received um, at least one dose of vaccine, 81% now, with 78% of those um, receiving two jabs, they're fully vaccinated. But again, um, look out for those uh, on you know social media as well as on Cayman Mall Road. Um, we'll have that story up in, in not so much. But thank you all for watching so much. Next week on Tuesday, which will be when our next CMR COVID Spotlight is, that's going to uh, look at nutrition and COVID-19. Um, having a, a, a very or a healthier diet is going to be extremely important in order to be able to best protect yourself against COVID. So we have a nutritionist that's going to be coming on the show to discuss how your diet um, can be, you know, improved. So if you get COVID or even before you get COVID and even after COVID, how, how that plays a role. And, and as well as we know, holiday season's coming up, that cassava cake and all that good, good, good Christmas cooking is going to really be happening. We're going to see more and more of that happening. We want to make sure that people are kind of keeping it in mind as you are, are choosing um, your meal choices. So again, thank you all very much for watching the CMI COVID Spotlight. And that's it for tonight. Have a great one, everyone.